0: Amen. The gloomy clouds that opened in Numbers 20 are still hanging over the chapter. In Numbers chapter 20, Moses' sister dies at the beginning. At the end of Numbers 20, Moses' brother dies. This is an important framing device for the chapter. That you can see the challenges Moses has faced relationally. Not just with the Israelites, with their obstinance and his own indwelling sins and tendencies toward maybe an outburst like you see in in Numbers 20. You see the loss that he and the generation he represents. They are experiencing this. They are nearing the promised land and a transition is underway. Before Aaron dies... The people of Israel try to get closer to the land and they see a geographical advantage to go a particular route. They want to go through the land of Edom. On this Bible map tonight, what you see here in the red is the route from the uh, Egyptian Exodus all the way to Sinai. And the purple takes you up to Kadesh Barnea where in Kadesh Barnea there was the rebellion in Numbers 13 and 14, the return to Kadesh that we saw this morning. But the green, the green is associated with Edom right there to, in the middle of those green lines. And the hope was that they would travel east from Kadesh to Barnea to Edom and go right through the territory. If they went to Edom and on up north through Moab, they would end up on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They are so close to the promised land. Geographically, this is a smart move. What the story says to us tonight is Edom refuses to let them through. And they refused to let them through to the degree that if they, that they said, if you come through, we will come against you with sword and strong force. This will require the Israelites to go south below Edom and go all the way around their territory, which is what Numbers 21 is preparing us for. But they are nearing the promised land. They are quite close. What we notice is as they will have to go around Edom, they will come to a mountain called Mount Hor and Aaron will die. The specific location of Mount Hor is a trickier thing. We don't see it represented on the Bible map tonight, for instance, though there is some speculation. But it is along the border of Edom. So as they're going around the border of Edom, they will come to a mountain where Aaron is going to die. The gloomy clouds continue. Here's what I want us to notice about these Edomites who refuse to let the Israelites pass. They have... An interesting history genealogically. And we just need to remind ourselves from Genesis where the Edomites are from and where the Israelites are from, or should we say who they are from. Because Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob has uh, the Israelites. But Isaac not only had Jacob, he had Jacob and Esau. Not only does Jacob have descendants, the Israelites, Isaac's son Esau also has descendants. The Edomites descend from Esau. If we took the Israelites and the Edomites and saw this conflict tonight, trace it all the way back, it seems to be rooted in what was initially a sibling conflict where Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau, had a relationship marked by hostility. And we see that opening in Genesis 25 when Jacob is grasping at Esau's heel. Now, in Genesis in uh, Numbers 20 in verses 14 to 21, this paragraph gives you Edom's refusal to let Israel through. And the writer wants us to know this. It's not a long paragraph, but the narrator expects the reader to understand this is rooted In some earlier realities that have some ongoing tensions. And this is why Moses sends messengers with a message worded in a particular way. In verses 14 through 21, there's a back and forth between a request and Edom's reply. And another request And Edom's reply. So the paragraph works quite nicely with how it's organized. It's a request, Edom's reply, another request, a second reply, and that's the paragraph. We need to see the first request, and it's quite diplomatic. Moses sent messengers. We're not told how many, we're not told who they were. We just know that some messengers are sent on a diplomatic mission. They go from Kadesh to the king of Edom, which means Kadesh, they will travel east and a bit southeast to Edom in order to meet with the representative, the political leader, the king of Edom. The language that you see in verse 14 is why I briefly reviewed the Genesis history. Thus says your brother Israel. Why would the messengers put it that way? The reason they say, thus says your brother Israel, is because they have a family connection going far, far back. And the appeal is to this relationship. It doesn't just say, hey, the Israelites want this. The reason they're including that very careful phrase, your brother Israel says, is they hope to use, not in a wrong way, but to to rightfully, diplomatically leverage the family history. Because the last time Jacob and Esau had met was not after the, you know, uh, immediately after all of the tension and hostile events from Genesis 25 and those next several chapters. Genesis 33 reports a gracious encounter between Jacob and Esau. They end up going their separate ways. Esau does not show himself to be a covenant member with Israel. He has refused the promised land. And even Hebrews 12 tells us Esau remained an unrepentant person. That does not change the family history that they have and the gracious reconciliation that was the end point of that relationship. Therefore, Israelites come to the Edomites and to the king. It is said, thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that we have met. People would not be ignorant of the events of what happened in Egypt. And he is going to remind them of a story that's already made it to Canaan. And the reason we know this is in the book of Joshua, Rahab and others at Jericho, they clearly say to the Israelites, we've heard about what God did in Egypt. That's not the sort of thing to get swept under the rug politically. And this is in an age before social media. And so this is the kind of thing that reaches all the way to the other parts of the ancient Near East. And the king of Edom is is told, you know the hardship we've met. What does he have in mind? Well, the messengers are speaking with a collective voice. How our fathers went down to Egypt. That's the end of Genesis, isn't it? You have Joseph going to Egypt. You have the Israelites eventually going as well. Joseph provides for them. They remain there. We lived in Egypt a long time. Ah, yes, indeed. How about hundreds of years? That sounds like a long time. That's not just a few decades. You might say, well, the Israelites were in a wilderness a long time. Not as long as Israel was in Egypt. That was even a lot longer. And the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And we know this truth from the beginning of Exodus. Exodus 1 tells us of the rootlessness of a Pharaoh who rose to power and did not know Joseph. And he subjected the Israelites to slavery and harsh living. The Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers and we cried to the Lord. You can read in Exodus 2, 23 through 24, and they cried out to the Lord for deliverance. The Lord heard their cry. The Lord moved to act on on their behalf and to fulfill covenant promises. He heard our voice, and he sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Now, the angel of the Lord is probably what's being evoked there when it says he sent an angel. In Exodus 13 and 14, the Lord leads them out with a pillar of cloud and fire to guide the people not just out of Egypt, but into the promised land. An angel of the Lord language is used with Exodus 13 and 14. So that's probably what's in view. The Lord led us out. He brought us out of Egypt, and here we are in Kadesh. Now, so what's interesting about this part of the story is earlier in Numbers 20, we had a group of people saying, why have you brought us out of Egypt? Why are we here in this place? Why were we made to leave? Well, apparently somebody knows. Apparently somebody knows the answers to those questions. Because in here in Numbers 20, we see history being accurately recounted of their bondage and the fact that they were delivered. And now we're told that they're here in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Here's the request. All of that's a build up to this. Please let us pass through your land. They're not interested in taking over Edom. Please let us occupy your land. We are now going to take it. They said, listen, we're just wanting to pass through your land because if they can pass through Edom, they can go up through Moab and then in the plains of Moab be directly across from the promised land. That will be where they end up. In numbers, this will be where they end up. Deuteronomy opens with them north of Edom in the plains of Moab. They will cross the Jordan River. In the book of Joshua, they are coming very close. Let's pass through your land. And we will not pass through field or vineyard. This is a way of saying we are not interested in coming and messing up what you're growing. We're not interested in seeing your fields and saying, I think we'll just take a bunch of that for the thousands of us along the way. He's saying, we don't want to take advantage of you. We're not trying to exploit your fields or vineyards. We're not even trying to take all your water. We're requesting this not because we see your resources as exploitable. It's not what we're thinking. We will go along the King's Highway. What does that refer to? If we were to Google Bible map, King's Highway like I did to refresh my mind earlier, we, we will notice that they go in the, what the King's Highway refers to is a place from Edom up to Moab and on up on the eastern side of the Jordan River. It's a straight shot of travel. It takes you even beyond where the Jordan River would go into the Sea of Galilee in the north. It's not even visible on the map here, but it's a place that we just go straight through. He's saying to them, listen, we know the route that people will often travel termed the King's Highway. And that's what we intend to do. We're just going to go on that express lane, okay? We're going to go right through your land. We're not here to go through all your fields, your wells, your vineyards. We want to go straight through on the King's Highway. We're not going to turn to the right. We're not going to turn to the left until we pass through your territory. Now, if you are an ancient Near Eastern people, and a group as large as the Israelites are coming through, It's going to give you a little bit of pause. You're just going to think, okay, you know, we've got all these resources, all this land, and there's a lot of people coming through. It would be understandable politically, economically, if you were a little concerned about what this could mean, that this whole nation of people were passing through your territory. But you might think to yourself, given what has happened, given the history that we have, given the commitment that they are making diplomatically, we're just passing through, we are not here to stay You might say, okay, go ahead. Edom says in verse 18, here's their first reply. You shall not pass through lest I come out with a sword against you. Nothing subtle about that. If you come to our territory, we will come to you with military force. We will have a battle. That's what that language means. Well, there's a second request. The, the people of Israel don't just turn around at that point. The people return with a response. The people of Israel said, "We will go up by the highway," meaning that king's highway. And if we drink of your water, I and my livestock, then I will pay for it." Notice how advantageous this particular strategy is. If the people of Edom said, "This whole nation is going to pass through, somebody's going to get thirsty. Somebody's going to get hungry. I mean, come on. You're just going to all pass through and you're not going to touch anything. And they're saying, listen, even if that were to happen, we will make it up to you economically. We will not leave you at a loss. So they're really trying to show graciousness and deference to the needs of the Edomites. We can appreciate this. They're trying to have a good relationship. They're not just trying to barrel their way through, come what may. That's not what they're interested in. And he says, let me only pass through on foot nothing more well then the second reply in verses 20 to 21 he said you shall not pass through makes me think of gandalf in lord of the rings where he's like you shall not pass and here you have this scene and i feel like the edomites the king they're just looking at the people and they're like you're not crossing our border and if you do you do so at your peril you didn't see lord of the rings reference coming but there you go maybe some of you did actually you shall not pass through and Edom came out against them with a large army and with strong force. Oh, they're not bluffing, are they? The Edomites show up in force. I don't think we should imply that a battle takes place. I don't think that's what happens here. But it does say they come out with a large army and a strong force, bringing all their spears and arrows and chairs. You just can of imagine here the intimidating factor militarily. And the Israelites are like, all right. They are so serious. (laughs) They are so serious. So what do you do? In verse 21, Edom refused to give Israel passes through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. Now, according to Genesis 32 and 33, Jacob and Esau's last connection together was met with reconciliation. That isn't what the descendants of Jacob and Esau are acting like right there. It's not like that at all. This very episode in Numbers 20 could be what lies behind the language of Amos. The minor prophet named Amos has a line in Amos 1 and in verse 11. And it says, For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. It's, I think, a way of him saying the Edomites maintained a grudge against the Israelites and came out to them with the sword. Could that be alluding to that earlier episode when the Edomites refused them passage? Very likely. Now, as they have to journey, all right, there's no crossing over Edom. No, they're just going south now. They're going to go south. It's going to take them longer to get where they need. They're going to have to go all the way around Edom and then go north. So they're going to have to go south and east before they go north, and they're going to have a lot more distance to to, uh, travel. But along the way, another transition happens. As important as it is to know what the Edomites did, The second paragraph is the most important of the two. The second paragraph reports for us the death of Aaron. And we need to connect the end of this chapter with episodes that we saw this morning. Moses striking the rock. But preceding that, Aaron and Moses being given certain instructions, both of them being held responsible. Moses is going to be forbidden to enter the land. He will die in Deuteronomy 34. Aaron is forbidden to lead the people into the land as the high priest. He will die in this very chapter. This is a time of transition and succession. In these uh, windows of chapters in in Numbers, we're going to see the high priest die tonight and a new high priest take the reins. And then by the end of the Pentateuch, by the end of Deuteronomy, Moses will die and Joshua is prepared to take the reins as the successor. This is the period of time we're in. Why is this such a sensitive period in Israel's history? It's the 40th year. This is not early in the wandering. We learn from Numbers 33, Aaron dies in the 40th year of Israel's wilderness wandering. When Numbers 20 opened with the first month these various things happened, the whole of the book of Numbers helps us see this is the last year. So much death has taken place. And the high priest has outlasted nearly all of them but not after this chapter. In Numbers 20, we're told in verse 22, they journeyed from Kadesh and the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came to Mount Hor. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor, on the border of the land of Edom, let Aaron be gathered to his people. Now sometimes this phrase might simply mean in the ancient world, Take him to the places forefathers were buried. There can, it can be a kind of idiom, in other words, a way of talking about being gathered to the same burial plot. It doesn't have to mean that. There are certain indications in Genesis that might even envision the people who have died joining with the saints who have gone before them. That actually gathering with your people is to join those who have gone before you and walked by faith with Yahweh. Notice why that was, that's probably a likely view here. Aaron is going to die on a mountain. None of his forefathers are buried on Mount Hor. So for Aaron to be gathered to his fathers must mean something more than where he's going to be physically located. It must mean Aaron is going to die and die in his trust in Yahweh, though an imperfect disciple as he is. Let Aaron be gathered to his people. That means he's going to die. For he shall not enter the land that I have given to the people of Israel, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. This includes a responsibility that both Moses and Aaron had. And both Moses and Aaron will face consequences for the lack of follow through in the instructions. Uh, Even as I was was reflecting on this morning, this afternoon, thinking about uh, the consequences for Moses. It might be easy for some of us to go and see um, the leadership of Moses in the Pentateuch and think, my goodness, denied entrance into the promised land after all those years and all of that investment. And I can certainly understand why, if that's an instinct we have, why that's the case. Because Moses had endured much, suffered much, and had gone through all of those decades only to then be disinherited. The position of Moses in the, in the people... The high priesthood that Aaron occupies. It's these roles among the Israelites that raise the stakes of responsibility. I shared with, uh, with us recently at one of our um, corporate worship services of uh, James chapter 3 and about how um, it's, uh, the teachers of the scriptures are going to be judged more strictly. And it's not because non-teachers shouldn't care at all about judgment. But there is a particular responsibility that goes with the role that seems to escalate with its importance and vulnerability, the kind of outcome with chastisement and discipline and judgment If we have those categories in mind, it's not a small thing that Moses did what he did. Moses isn't just another Israelite among the camp who's doing something rebellious. He's the prophet who speaks mouth to mouth with the Lord by the Lord's own proclamation. Aaron is not just anybody in the Israelite community. He's the high priest of Israel. For those two men to do what they did in Numbers 20 is a height of folly and seriousness. So the consequences are in no way overblown or uh, rash. Instead, it is fitting the responsibilities that they bore. Notice both Aaron and Moses, these are not people dying under the condemnation of God. These are people who are 120 if you're Moses and 123 if you're Aaron. Aaron is three years older than Moses. We learn this from Exodus 7. This means when Aaron dies, he's going to be 123 years old. In one sense, both Aaron and Moses might count it in some way a mercy of the Lord that they not have to lead an embattled nation into the conquest. They will die and then rise in the new creation to inherit the earth. Aaron and Uh, Aaron is going to be gathered to his people. The rebellion against my command at the waters of Meribah is what's highlighted in verse 24. And the earlier part of this chapter is what explains that. So what are the instructions? Verses 25 and 26. Take Aaron and Eliezer. Now Aaron had four sons when we first met Aaron. He had Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. Two of those sons have been struck down by the judgment of the Lord in Leviticus 10. So there's Aaron the high priest and two priests, his sons, Ithamar and Eliezer. The line from Aaron in the priesthood will now narrow to Eliezer. Aaron to Eliezer. Eliezer will become the successor. He's told, take Aaron and Eliezer, his son, bring them up to Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments. Now, Hebrew scholars have thought about this particular command. You might have expected the language to just as well say, Aaron, go ahead and start removing these garments, hand them to your son, help, help him get dressed, you know, make, make this a ceremonial and in, in, uh, regal even in terms of its importance and authority as the high priest. And yet Moses is told, you strip Aaron. And there are plenty of contexts in the Old Testament when, when the kind of verb that's used here is used elsewhere, it's in a derogatory way. It's to be stripped of something because of something you have done. That may indeed be the way to understand this here. Moses is told you need to strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eliezer, his son, so that this action would make clear the dishonorable way Aaron had behaved earlier in the chapter. It's a heavy moment, isn't it? Strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son, and Aaron shall be gathered to his people and shall die there. The garments are not removed after Aaron's death. Think about the appropriateness of this order here. There is a sense in which we would recognize those garments of the high priest to be rendered unclean if they were to be on the body of Aaron after Aaron's death. It is important that those garments are removed. They are then placed on Eleazar, and then Aaron is going to die, and Eleazar the high priest, will not see to his burial. It will be Moses who will do that. Eleazar will be the high priest. Overseeing burials and contact with the dead is not the job of the high priest, We see this in Leviticus 21, most specifically. All right, well, this is the instruction then. Aaron's 123 years old. He's going to be stripped of his garments. They're going to be placed on Eliezer, his son. Aaron shall die on Mount Hor. You know, Moses has climbed a lot of mountains. Up and down. Up and down. And he's, you know, looking at the calendars, 120 years old. Here we go, up another mountain, all right, up Mount Hor. It's like, you know, we're right here. Like Can he just die here? Uh, but he's going up on the mountain. That's where we're heading. So up Moses goes, you know, can appreciate his perseverance. Up the mountain and with Aaron, 123, and with Eliezer, age unknown. And the garments that we see... In Leviticus 8 and earlier in Exodus 28 and 29 are the lavish high priestly garments. We're talking about the breast pieces and the jewels. We're talking about the linen garment as well as the bells and pomegranates that are woven at the bottom. We're talking about the turban and the golden piece on the front that says holy is to the Lord. We're talking about what makes the high priest look like the high priest. Nobody else in Israel is dressed that way. The priests have special linen garments, but they're dressed down compared to Aaron. Aaron, as the high priest, looks different and it's intentional. And so here goes Aaron in verse 27 Moses did as the Lord commanded, and they went up Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. You just imagine the people that have gathered there and they're watching. They're watching three go up, and only two are going to come down. They're watching three go up, and only two are coming back. They're watching their high priest walk up with those vestments, and another person's going to be wearing those vestments when they come back down. This is a a moment of great gravity for the people of Israel. They are seeing this one who has walked with them for decades. He's been the only high priest they've ever known. And now Aaron is going to die. In verse 27, Moses did as the Lord commanded. They went up Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation and Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eliezer, his son. I don't know if there was friendly banter or chatter. How could we? was the whole scene just silent and you could hear a pin drop where this solemn activity is taking place. Aaron is having someone remove his garments and Eliezer is extending out his arms and moving his body as he needs to to be dressed in things he has never worn. It's a heavy moment. A heavy moment for all the Israelites and certainly for Eliezer because in bearing these high priestly vestments, he is taking on a role and responsibility that comes with grave consequences if treated lightly. And surely his two dead brothers, Nadab and Abihu, their blood testifies to the fact of the seriousness of the holiness of Yahweh at the sanctuary. Surely his father Aaron's disinheritance from the promised land demonstrates the gravity of the high priestly role. And Eliezer, with these sort of things no doubt pressing deeply upon him, is wearing now the vestments of the high priest. We're told in verse 28, Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain and the high priest has now passed to the successor. There is only one high priest at a time with Israel in the Old Testament. There is a high priesthood until death. Until God decides through the death, physical death of the high priest. This means Aaron's death Is an appointed time. You you can get a sense that in Numbers 20, Aaron's death is under the decision of God in light of what's happened earlier in Numbers 20. That of all the people of that older generation that have not died, Aaron being among them, it is now Aaron's turn and his body dies on that mountain. Two men come down. In verse 29, when all the congregation saw that Aaron had perished, That's a strong verb. It's not even that they saw that Aaron had died. It's a verb that earlier in Numbers speaks of a kind of thing that fits contexts of judgment. That under the decree of God, Aaron shall die on that day and not enter the promised land. Aaron has perished. The congregation sees that this is the case. How do they know that? That's not Aaron wearing those garments anymore. It is clear to them that a transition has happened. And all the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. Now, in a normal time of uh, dealing with the dead and a period of uncleanness, you're looking at what was more commonly described as a seven-day period. And a 30-day period is an extended time of mourning, We see this happening from Moses in Deuteronomy 34. They lamented for the death of Moses 30 days. These extended periods of mourning and no doubt weeks of uncleanness, if there was mourning with contact with the dead and the burial and visitation of the site and all the rest, you would have an extended period, no doubt, because of who Aaron was. He was the high priest of Israel. Was he a perfect high priest? No, we've been concerned about some of the things Aaron might be willing to do all the way back with Exodus 32 when he helped build a golden calf. So we don't look at Aaron's high priesthood and say, oh, what a blameless ministry that all turned out to be. No, 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 no. There were concerns about Aaron. And yet at the same time, Aaron demonstrates the authority of Yahweh in the midst of the people, leading the priesthood, being the one who would go behind the veil for the day of atonement. There was a gravitas to the role of the high priest. And it's not because Aaron was so righteous, but because God was gracious. That's why there was a high priest. Aaron is a sinner. We're told in Leviticus that the high priest goes and he makes atoning sacrifices. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. So here you have a person who was a high high priest who died as a sinner. And they mourn for him for 30 days. And in the full scope of scripture, here's what I think we see, friends. Though Edom has refused Israel passage... They will go around Edom and go north. And in the plains of Moab, later in Numbers, remain there even into Deuteronomy and cross the Jordan River in the book of Joshua. The Edomites will not thwart the entrance to the promised land. Though they are politically stubborn, though they are concerned maybe about resources and any military might, the Israelites might be sneaking in like a Trojan horse. The Edomites have made a decision that will not thwart the inheritance of the land. It will take place. But when we see the high priesthood here in light of the whole of Scripture, we realize that this is a problem with the priesthood in general. The problem is that the priests die. They're sinners and they die. You only have to look at Nadab and Abihu to see earlier in Leviticus 10, priests can die. And they weren't coming back. And then you have here Aaron. He goes up on the mountain and his son comes back dressed up in the vestments because the high priest dies. According to Hebrews 7, Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Their vulnerability as sinners in a Genesis 3 world meant they had a death problem. The high priesthood of Aaron and the Levites as a whole that would succeed him as priests, they would continue facing that death problem. A new priesthood was necessary. When we see the full panorama of Scripture's unfolding story, beyond numbers, here's what we see coming. There was an earlier priest in Genesis, a priest-king named Melchizedek. And Hebrews 7 says, Jesus will not have a priesthood like the priesthood of the Levites. He will have a different kind. After the kind of Melchizedek, Jesus will be priest and king. And in fact, what's unique about Jesus' priesthood and his reign as king is that Jesus deals at last with the death problem. If the priests were prevented by death from continuing in office, and Psalm 110 and in verse 4, that there will be a priest forever according to the likeness of Melchizedek, how shall the problem of death be dealt with? Well, resurrection from the dead is a good remedy. And if you have Christ as the high priest of all high priests, The one who would fulfill the role as prophet and priest and king. He establishes the permanence of these roles because he rises from the dead. You don't have a high priest in Christ Jesus who could not die. He does die. But in his establishment of his priesthood, it includes suffering, death and resurrection and ascension. This is the big emphasis in Hebrews. Hebrews emphasizes that Jesus is our perfect priest who's done what no sacrifice or blood of animals could have ever done in the Old Testament. And he does it once and for all by the sacrifice of himself. But how can a priest be of that kind of permanence and consequence for sinners? With a death problem. It tells us in Hebrews 7, 24, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently now because he continues forever. So the priesthood of Jesus continues as long as Jesus does. And that was true for any high priest that ever lived. They were high priest as long as they were alive. But if Jesus rises never to die again, then the high priesthood he has assumed continues as long as he will. And that means permanently. We have an eternal high priest in the heavens. One who has made purification for sin and ascended to where Aaron could never minister. Jesus has gone into the holy of holies in the heavenly places. The veil of his flesh has been torn on the cross. And he has now established a permanent priesthood. And Aaron was a shadow of it. We could say Aaron was a type. Aaron was a type of Christ that Christ himself fulfills what Aaron's role as high priest pointed to. Noticing these two paragraphs then help us see not only how these episodes are connected to what we noticed this morning. In the first 13 verses, the travels of uh, of Israel, the uh, refusal of Edom uh, to Israel, and then Aaron's death. We see beyond numbers where things are going. The plan is to bring Israel to their inheritance. But ultimately... The land of Canaan would not be the greatest inheritance they would have. In Christ Jesus, the one who would be a true and greater Aaron and have a permanent high priesthood, Christ secures for his people a new creation. So we press forward. enemies. On all sides, hostile powers in this world and principalities, our own indwelling sin and the antagonists that would persecute the people of God around the world. None of this will prevent the people of God from inheriting what God has for them. No Edomite and no satanic rebel, no demonic host, no principality in the heavenly places would ever accomplish such measures against the people of God. The people of God will inherit all that God has for them. You say, well, Aaron here dies beforehand. Even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're told in Hebrews 11, they died in faith, not receiving the things hoped for. How is it that we will inherit what God has for His people, though we die? The answer is what He has already shown us in the installment of Christ Jesus Himself. The hope is resurrection from the dead. That in rising from the dead in victory, we will receive forever the eternal inheritance that Christ has accomplished and secured for his people as our perfect high priest. He has not been prevented by death from continuing in office. He has established his office forever because he broke death from the inside when he rose on the third day. Let's pray together.